Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, and, of course, many of the people who drank the tea in 1775 in Boston were British soldiers and uh, Navy men, but many were also loyalists who remained in Boston. And loyalists were Americans. They were colonists. Um, they were Britons who drank tea as everyone had five years earlier. That's author and historian James Fichter discussing his new article focusing on what happened to the missing tea from the infamous Boston Tea Party. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is James Fichter, and he's going to be discussing with us an element or aspect of the Boston Tea Party that we really aren't sure of, uh, that we don't know well enough. That is to say, four ships were sent to Boston to deliver tea on behalf of the British East India Company, but only three arrived. What happened to the fourth ship? And more importantly, what happened to all that tea? This is a wonderful example today of the kind of material, new research, and thought-provoking conversations that you'll find on the Journal of the American Revolution website, www.allthingsliberty.com. James is an established historian. He's been published in the past. He brought his article here because it allows for immediate uh, replies and responses and and conversation uh, from some of the brightest minds in the field. We're all familiar with the Boston Tea Party, yet holds a special place in the American consciousness. We discuss that aspect or element of the story with James today. But we also learned a lot about the Boston Tea Party, which we weren't familiar with, uh, particularly how this event fits into the global context of the American Revolution uh, and how it is viewed from the British perspective. James is very clear in the beginning of the interview. He views the British Empire as a global phenomenon. Uh, And I think when you take that perspective, you can get a whole new glimpse and and really a better understanding of an event we think we know so well. So without further ado, sit back, relax, grab a cup of tea, and enjoy our interview with James Fichter. James Fichter? Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Okay. Well, you know, I did my, uh, my PhD in colonial American history. Uh, and while I was studying it, I came to be interested in the idea of approaching it uh, not as the history of 13 colonies that will later become part of the USA, which I, I think is often how people think about it. Um, but, but instead, the history of colonies that were at the time part of the British Empire and deeply connected to the other colonies in the empire, many of which, you know, stayed in the empire after 1783. So I, I came to see colonial American history not really as U.S. history, 
which is how it's usually conceived of, but it's British imperial history. Uh, and, and that's encouraged me to sort to look uh, at the American Revolution a bit differently. What first drew your interest into this topic? Yeah, I, I, this is part of a, uh, a larger book project uh, called Tea's Party that looks at the um, a role of tea in the revolution between the Boston Tea Party in 1773 and independence in, in 76. But I, I really got drawn to it um, when I was working on my dissertation uh, and my, my, the, the, the work that came out of that was focused on American trade with Asia. Uh, in, in the early years after independence, and in particular, uh, uh, talked about the tea trade. And so that drew me to the story of, uh, I was dealing with tea merchants in Boston after the revolution, and that drew me to the story of the Boston Tea Party, and I began to play around with that. Uh, and, and after I'd finished that project, I, I was still playing with it, and I kept on coming up against these, these shibboleths that I, I first wanted to use, and then and I wanted to believe in, but then slowly began to question. Um, I, I found myself questioning the idea that the revolution moved Americans from being tea-drinking Brits to proper, moved colonists from being tea-drinking Brits to proper coffee-loving Americans, for instance, which is a, uh, a common trope. Um, and I started playing with that. Uh, and along the way, I started to wonder, well, if Americans didn't really move against tea, I, I worked out looking at uh, consumer information, I was able to work out in terms of import levels and population data that American tea consumption increased uh, after the revolution. Uh, well, you know, if Americans didn't turn against tea, uh, did they ever really stop in the revolution at all? Which got me interested in the boycotts that were part of the revolution uh, and the extent to which they were ever really followed or if they were only given lip service. You've mentioned already your perspective on America uh, very much as part of a global British empire. Without question, the British East India Company was one of the great mechanisms of empire. Uh, so could you talk about who they were and how they functioned in the 18th century? Yeah, the, the East India Company was uh, uh, one of the big corporations in early modern Britain. Uh, established uh, formally, incorporated formally by the crown and, and given a, a charter that gave it an exclusive monopoly on trade between Britain and also uh, uh, all of Britain's Atlantic colonies had to be subsumed under this monopoly as well uh, and uh, trade between Britain and Asia. And, and that meant that it controlled uh, the tea trade between the UK or between Britain at the time and uh, China, but also uh, trade uh, with uh, Fort Marlborough, which was in Sumatra, uh, trade with uh, ports in India that it controlled. And of course, uh, by the 1770s, it had uh, large chunks of territory in Bengal, uh, hundreds of thousands of troops, uh, its own naval force, uh, and was a, a major military force in Asia as well. So uh, this was a large corporation with hundreds of thousands of employees. It had this sort of land army in Asia, but also this massive trading concern. And uh, really by the 1770s, uh, what had been many different trades had been narrowing down toward tea as being the big one that was still profitable. Uh, they had imported manufactured cotton cloth and things like that uh, into Britain for years from India, and, and that trade's beginning to dwindle. Uh, there's a big debate about when and how much it dwindles, but uh, it moves from cloth to tea. Um, and 
uh, as it focuses more on tea, therefore more of the business really becomes the tea comes in by the CD company into London. Um, it's uh, they put it in warehouses. They bring it out of the warehouses uh, for auction, and London merchants will bid on it, and then uh, it's purchased at this auction and then distributed to Scotland, Bristol, uh, Halifax, Charleston, the uh, the Bahamas or Bermuda or New York. Uh, after that. Or at least that's the idea. What do you feel are the biggest misconceptions about the Boston Tea Party? You know, I, it's funny because the I think that the misconceptions here certainly there's there's often a difference between uh, how uh, the general public views an historical event and how academics would like to talk about it amongst themselves. But I, I found in this case that many of the misconceptions are shared by many scholars uh, as well. Um, it, it's, there's not really a strong cleave between the, the, how the public sees it and how uh, sort of a small coterie of academics talks about it. Uh, one of these is that the Tea Party was part of a boycott. You know, and uh, boycott as a, as a word wasn't used at the time. It, it's a word from Irish history from decades later. Um, uh, but a boycott, as we normally think of it, right, it's when people volunteer or agree not to buy or consume something. Um, and the Boston Tea Party wasn't a boycott. It was a direct action that destroyed tea coming into Boston before it could reach the Boston city consumers because the Boston Patriot leadership didn't trust townspeople to be able to adhere to a boycott once the tea arrived. So... This creates a very different setup in terms of who supported the Tea Party, who it was really being implemented against, and, and who was doing what to whom with it. It wasn't just the Boston Patriot radical leadership doing this to the tea importers, uh, of the importers of the senior company's tea. It was also doing this to the Boston populace because they didn't trust that the Boston populace would follow through. Um, and they reasonably didn't trust because previous attempts at boycotts had failed because people didn't adhere to them. Um, so, you know, there uh, an outgrowth of this, of course, is the misconception that the Boston Tea Party was popular or widely approved of. Um, it actually wasn't. Um, even major patriots, George Washington, for example, disapproved. Uh, they felt it was an extremely violent action uh, that was destructive of property. And of course, most patriot leaders at this time are propertied men. They're uh, merchants or plantation owners or uh, lawyers or other elites with assets that probably aren't too excited about uh, mass property destruction by mobs as a, a movement for the patriot movement, as a direction the patriot movement should go. Um, and of course, people who were not part of the Patriot movement were even less likely to be supportive of the Tea Party. Many colonists were simply outraged. Uh, and this really changed the dynamic of politics in the colonies in early 1774. And before, for about a decade, you had had what Patriots had been able to portray as provocations from the ministry in London. The, the ministry passes the Stamp Act, it passes the Townsend Act, it passes the Declaratory Act, etc., etc. And all of these laws are violations of, of, as the Patriots saw, of the constitutional rights of the colonists as Englishmen. But here now, it was the Patriots who were violating the right of property ownership of other Englishmen. Uh, in this case, the uh, uh, tea importers and the East India Company. 
And so uh, this became a moment when colonial sentiment began to see the patriots as being excessive and needing to be reined in. Uh, but what happened was that the ministry, uh, Lord North, was clueless and couldn't even really conceive of the idea of what politics in the colonies could be. Uh, he, he didn't engage with co politics in the colonies. He, he had many correspondents from the colonies who gave him updates about what was going on, as did Lord Dartmouth. But uh, uh, North felt that the key venue for politics was the House of Lords. Uh, and to a lesser extent, the House of Commons, but it was London politics that mattered. And so he passes the Coercive Acts, uh, which is, he sees as the just response to the Tea Party, but which are seen as so excessive in the colonies that the outrage shifts again to being outraged against the ministry. So we miss the degree to which the Tea Party was actually unpopular because uh, it was unpopular for only a few months until news of the coercive acts came in by around May or early May, there, this news arrives in the colonies, May of 1774. And, and at this point, most colonists uh, are so outraged by the coercive acts that they forget their outrage about the, the destruction of the tea. Um, and the ministry has then lost its moment when it could have perhaps gotten one over the patriots. We often hear today that in the 1770s, tea was a symbol was that the case, or is that, in your opinion, overstated? Yeah, I think it is It is both the case and also not, in the sense that it was a symbol for some people, but it wasn't a, a universal symbol. Um, there were a lot of potential symbols. In the 1768-9 non-importation movement and uh, non-consumption movement, uh, certainly tea was an important symbol for that movement. But there were other symbols at the time. What really, uh, because there were other things that were not consumed and not imported, British manufacturers in general, for example. But after 1770, uh, when the other towns and duties are repealed and only the tax on tea remains, uh, tea is the only item left with symbolic value. But th that value is, is very fuzzy, though, because the East India Company is importing tea from China, but so is the Dutch East India Company and the Swedish and the, there are many other European importers of tea and a lot of the tea in the colonies is um, this tea smuggled in from Europe. And it, uh, it that muddies the symbolic value of tea. You can't really know if the tea, if the tea in this particular teapot is properly dutied uh, and legally imported tea from the East English English East India Company, which would uh, have a very different symbolic meaning than uh, honestly smuggled tea, as John Adams called it, uh, from the Dutch East India Company. So it has a very muddied value for a while. Uh, and it's really only after uh, the Tea Act in 1773, uh, which encourages the East India Company to export tea directly from London to the uh, American colonies, uh, and that the, the, the um, uh, and then after that, uh, the coercive acts that really gives tea a real distinct symbolic value because in response to the coercive acts, because the coercive acts are themselves a response to the Boston Tea Party, by burning tea in your own little tea party in your own little town in, say, New Jersey uh, or in, in South Carolina, you are demonstrating solidarity with the Boston Tea Party. Uh, with Boston suffering under the Boston Port Bill and your support for where the Patriot Movement is going, which is a new continent-wide non-importation and non-consumption agreement. 
But that, you know, as uh, uh, T.H. Breen has shown, there's a real ironic nature to that, right? Because tea only has symbolic value if there's so much of it around that it can be used as a symbol. So all these instances of people burning tea and protesting it are also, by their very nature, examples of people who owned and had previously bought tea that they could burn. Um, so it's a sign of its widespread consumer appeal uh, and a sign that people were still consuming it. Um, and then by uh, the time warfare begins, tea is a symbol and many of the other symbols of the boycott and the non-importation movement fade away and the real um, symbolic values become connected to warfare. The focus of your article are on the on the four ships that were destined to deliver tea to Boston. Only three arrive. So what happens to the fourth ship? Yeah, the fourth vessel. So there's there's the three that arrive, the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver, uh, tend to get the big focus. The fourth, the William, uh, wrecked in a storm off Cape Cod. Uh, and this was um, itself a bit odd because uh, the CD company had sent tea to four cities, to New York, to Philadelphia, and to Charleston, South Carolina as well. Um, and all of those tea shipments were just in one big tea ship, one big ship. And here we have instead it distributed across four little ones uh, in the Boston case. And that has made it a lot harder to follow because you have different ship owners reacting to the protests against the tea differently. Uh, but the William is later. It, it wrecks. Uh, and then one of the owners, uh, one of the tea consignees rides out on horseback to the Cape from Boston uh, and organizes a salvage effort to salvage the tea from the wreck. And uh, uh, most of the chests are salvaged. I think there's 58 chests initially uh, and around 54 or 55 are, are, are salvaged. And uh, some of this tea gets is paid out to the workmen who help salvage. And there becomes a big fracas on the Cape about whether this tea should be destroyed or whether the tea should be consumed, um, because it, it had, though it was East India Company tea, right, it hadn't paid the tax because it wasn't properly landed in Boston. Uh, so there becomes this whole debate about that. But the big bulk of the tea, 54 of these chests, are salvaged, uh, and they're brought by ship back into Boston. And since Boston at the time is just so under control of the radicals, e even though, of course, there are troops in Boston, and there had been troops there for half a decade. Uh, the tea is stored uh, on an island uh, in the harbor. Uh, it's stored in uh, Castle William, which is a fortification on Castle Island in Boston Harbor, uh, which is protected both by soldiers in the castle and by naval forces uh, at sea. So it is probably in the safest place it can be. And there it stays for over a year. What was Castle William? You've mentioned it already. And what role does that play in this story? Yeah, it, Castle William was an important fortification. Um, there had been something there for the last century and a half uh, to protect Boston. And there is there now. It, it's now Fort Independence. Um, and uh, it was a vital fortification at the time. When the British evacuated in March of 1776, they very carefully blew the whole thing up uh, because it was such an important fortification, they expected to be able to uh, re-attack Boston and take it back later, and they didn't want that fortification used against them. Um, and this fort was the headquarters where uh, uh, the, the soldiers, General Gage's men, when Gage arrived in 74, and he had his 
reinforcements of troops uh, that arrived, they were based there. Uh, and because it was on a, a, an island uh, and guarded by both therefore troops and ships, it was safe from the mob that controlled much of Boston town. So after the Boston Tea Party, many of the tea consignees, the people who imported the tea from the East India Company, fled to Castle William. I think some of the mandamus counselors from 1774 may have done so as well. It, it became a, a common place of refuge uh, to escape um, uh, the patriots, um, akin perhaps to Lord Dunmore fleeing to ships in Virginia. What's some of the methodology that you use uh, to trace this lost tea? How do you find that? Yeah, I... I did not. So that was uh, that comes from an, an article uh, Mary Beth Norton published, uh, I think, in 2016, the William Murray Quarterly, um, that she recalled that I think from papers done by the uh, by a, a man named Greeno, who was one of the uh, men involved in the salvaging. Um, but the the whole process uh, around the, the peeling around the tea story of this one section of the tea has been a very odd process uh, because the, the Tea Party is well written about. It, it, it's There are whole books published on it, a multi, several. Uh, and of course, it's, it's a canonical event in the American Revolution. So it's not the sort of thing where you would really expect there to be um, a new material to be discovered. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was quite surprised that this one tea ship wasn't well covered. And so the, the peeling away of it was, was quite bizarre. So uh, not only was there then the story of its rescue from the Cape, but then once uh, Mary Beth had figured out that it was rescued from the Cape, uh, we were, she was um, writing her article and uh, at the same time that I was working on this. So we were corresponding together about it. And we couldn't figure out what happened to it after it got to the castle. Um, so I spent you know, years wondering about this and going over, for example, the records of the British evacuation to see if they had taken it with them when they left, when they blew up the castle, uh, or when the American army, uh, when Washington's army comes in and, and invades uh, Boston the next day, uh, his quartermaster takes a survey of the uh, property in the town and uh, what's left in the castle. And I looking there for indication that the tea had survived or if the tea hadn't survived and it hadn't been taken out was it blown up was it was it consumed in Boston during the siege and I couldn't find anything um, and then I thought to myself well you know maybe and it just seemed like a dumb idea because it's a sort of research line that you assume other people have already pursued so I thought, well, I, I, I'm unlikely to find anything here. I thought, well, maybe the East India Company has correspondence about what happened to its tea. So I just started looking in, in London for the East, at the East India Company correspondence to see if they had anything that talked about the tea. Uh, and I, I began to see why, it dis why they didn't. The, um, the index to their correspondence, the page that indexes the stuff about the tea from 1774 is missing. So the correspondence is there, but it's a thousand page long handwritten manuscript and the index is in incomplete. So you can't find the content. Um, so the East India Company gets written out of the story in 1774 as a result because you can't find the right correspondence. And so I just 
on a whim thought I'd check the index of their correspondence for 1775 to see if the T was mentioned. And lo and behold, it was. Um, and, and that was the auction record, or re not an auction record, but a, a report from the tea owners, in, in the tea consignees in Boston, back to the East India Company indicating they'd had this auction, um, which was uh, news to me and, and actually news to everyone. What do you feel should be the legacy of the Boston Tea Party, and why do you think it survived so long in the American consciousness? Yeah, I think uh, uh, I began this project too long ago, when uh, before uh, the Tea Party was a, a term to describe a political movement in the United States today. Um, but obviously, it was used as a term for a contemporary political movement because of its resonance. And it's that resonance as resistance to overpowerful government uh, that was the, the, the appeal of that term. Um, and, and of course, the Tea Party also has this legacy in its tie into the history of the revolution. It's seen as the, 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 the last protest, right? There have been these other protests against other parliamentary acts that had always been part of this tit for tat back and forth between the Patriots and the ministry, but it is the Tea Party that is the escalatory act that moves things from protest to revolution. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the other uh, element of it that becomes so crucial to its legacy. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's in, uh, useful to remember with this new discovery of the tea that survived and was therefore drunk by colonists in Boston, uh, and of course, many of the people who drank the tea in 1775 in Boston were British soldiers and uh, Navy men, but many were also loyalists who remained in Boston. And loyalists were Americans. They were colonists. Um, they were Britons who drank tea as everyone had five years earlier. So uh, it, it, the, the fact that some of the tea survived and that some of the tea uh, was consumed by colonists uh, is itself a useful reminder that you know, the revolution wasn't a consensual act. Not everyone agreed to it. It was a real revolution uh, that had to defeat its enemies, and those enemies were loyalists. Um, so there is, uh, the tea, in the story of the Tea Party, there is actually an understory uh, of uh, people who did not support the Patriot cause uh, and who were happy to continue drinking tea. Uh, and the survival of the tea on the William is a testament to that. James Victor? Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.